Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall uh, run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this evening, to be refreshed by the doctrine that is here, to be encouraged by the fact that you are always faithful, you are always steadfast, and you never change, and that you are the living God. Father, we pray that as we study these things, that it would not be just academic, but that it would be a recognition that these are truths that impact the way we think, the way we live, and the way we make decisions. We pray that we would be responsive to this challenge. In Christ's name, amen. Last night, we began our study of Elijah. And our world today is not a whole lot different than the world in which Elijah ministered. If anything, it was worse then, but we are headed in that same direction. The world in which Elijah lived was a world that had been given over to idolatry under the leadership of first Jeroboam I, who was the first king in the northern kingdom of Israel who led the nation in a revolt. But then at, through each successive king in the north, the nation of Israel, that is the northern kingdom of ten nations, became progressively enmeshed in idolatry, more and more rebellious against God. And people thought in terms of the uh, world system of that day, which was idolatry. And what they tried to do was they tried to hold two views. They tried to, on the one hand, hold to a view uh, believing in Yahweh. And on the other hand, they were also uh, getting involved in all the temporal sacrifices related to the various forms of idolatry that were present. And that became progressively worse, as we studied last night. Omri, who was Ahab's father, was said to have been the worst of all the kings, and he was the seventh king in the north. And then, that's okay, you'll get used to that. They fall down all the time. Uh, And then Ahab was the eighth king, and we're told that even though Omri was the worst of all the kings, Ahab was even worse. So Ahab takes them down to almost the lowest point, and a lot of that is due to his wife. Now, I don't want anybody here making any application to any recent presidents that we've had, the influence of their wives. Just don't even go there. You know, we'll just stick with what the Scripture says, okay? 
So we find a lot of comparison between our world and their world, and what we see is is uh, basically what's happening in Romans 1. Now, I'm going to take you all over Scripture today. I've been thinking about a lot of things related to this, and by the end of the day, I was going places that my PowerPoint didn't go. So... We're just going to relax and remind ourselves about a lot of principles and set the stage for what's going to happen in this huge confrontation that takes place between Elijah on the one hand and the 450 priests of Baal on the other hand on Mount Carmel. One of the most dramatic situations in all of the Old Testament, one of the most miraculous situations in the Old Testament, I think the scenario of 1 Kings 18 is surpassed in the Scripture only by the events, the miraculous events of the Exodus. But we have to set it all up so we understand what's happening and how it impacts us. Now, in Romans chapter 1, we get a divine commentary on what happens in cultural decline. And at the root of cultural decline is negative volition to God at the point of God consciousness. And in verse 18 of Romans 1 we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the wrath is revealed against the men who are truth suppressors. Now, not all men are truth suppressors at the point of God consciousness. There are those who are uh, positive to God, and God in his faithfulness gets the gospel to them, and they, of course, can become negative at gospel hearing. But uh, God gets the truth to them. But those who are negative are in this position of suppressing, literally means to hold down or to almost revamp truth. And that's what negative volition does, is it takes truth and it tries to put a spin on it so that it's not truth anymore, so that it's under man's control, not God's control. And so literally what they're doing is they are holding down truth and suppressing it or warping it by means of unrighteousness. Man wants to rewrite history. He wants to rewrite science. What we see today is this battle between so-called science in terms of evolution and Darwinian evolution, which is nothing more than a myth built upon a fabricated legend and promoted by liars versus the truth of the Bible. And it's the same thing. The Bible presents one consistent view of truth from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, and it doesn't vary at all any place in between. There's no revisions. There's no, uh, nothing is straightened out. It is one consistent revelation, and the choice between for you as a believer is are you going to stick with what the Word of God says and think in terms of divine viewpoint, or are you going to think in terms of the human viewpoint cosmic system around you? And that's always going to put you in a position where you're going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be a position where you're in conflict with the cosmic system around you, with your neighbors, with your family, with your, with your friends at times, with those you go to church with in some congregations, uh, with people you work with, with your employers, and at times you're going to be forced to make a decision, just like Elijah on Mount Carmel challenges the false uh, challenges the uh, false prophets of Baal, and he turns to the people and he says, how long are you going to stand between two opinions and try to keep one foot in each camp? And see, that's where most Christians are. They're not willing 
to challenge the human viewpoint thinking in their soul. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to the thinking of this age, but be transformed by the renovation of your mind, that you can demonstrate by your life that the will of God is good and perfect and true. And see, this is the issue, is are you going to be a cosmic believer where you're just wimping out in immaturity, or are you going to really have the guts and the spiritual courage to take a stand? Because what's ha- what we see happen is Christians keep trying to get along within whatever evil system they're operating in. That doesn't mean they're evil, but we all have to deal at times with operating within some system that is straight out of the culture, whether you're a public school teacher, or whether you're in politics, whether you're in business, Whatever it is, at some point there are real challenges to your divine viewpoint. And you have to decide if you're just going to keep your head down and watch the system gradually degrade, or if you're going to take a stand. And what happens is we become divided as believers. And different people answer this question in different ways. And so rather than taking a united stand in different organizations, what happens is people pop their heads up one at a time, And the enemy, just like sitting in a shooting gallery, pops us off one at a time. And we just get totally defeated in the whole process. And, of course, this always happens historically because we're in the devil's world. So I really don't suspect that we're going to change this because most Christians are going to be like Obadiah that we study in chapter 18 and are gutless wonders who try to be secret service Christians. You know, they think they can just be a secret agent in the world and uh, somehow get by without too much comp- We used to call them Clairol Christians. You know, only God knew for sure. <laughs> and that's what happens. And we have to learn to take a stand. And we, Because what happens, if we get involved in this situation where all of a sudden you're in an environment and you're, there's, there's policies that are being enforced by your your boss, your employer, your company, your corporation, the political system, whatever it may be, the church, ministries, let me tell you, I can give you the names of two or three ministries, a couple of seminaries, and probably a dozen churches right now where this kind of thing is going on. And you just, you've seen in the past 10 or 15 years in these organizations, there have been major changes in leadership and administration as the, the, uh, Baton has been passed from one generation to the next. And what happens is the new team comes along and they start bringing in new policies, new procedures, and people in these organizations who were dedicated to the older view, the older uh, policies, uh, still want to promote that, still think they can do some good where they are right now. They still think that, oh, I can teach school here even though this system has become so degraded I can still try to have a witness in this school system. And eventually what's happening in your own thinking in order to rationalize and justify staying there, that what, ha- you, what you're doing is you're very subtly eroding your own integrity through compromise. And you think that there's an end that justifies the means. And it's different for every believer has to think this through on their own. There aren't um, specific guidelines as when you cross that that river, and uh, there's a point of no return, but it happens. And I've watched this now going on, and it's amazing how you see people hanging on 
you know, two, three, five, fifteen, twenty years after there's been a shift at a ministry or a seminary, and they know that the seminary is on the skids, or this particular ministry is not being led as it ought, but because they're devoted to some previous agenda, like people at Dallas Seminary still hold on to Lewis Ferry Chafer. People in other ministries are devoted to whoever the founder was and who established it. But what's happened is that there's a degradation in the integrity of the current leadership, and they have basically compromised their own integrity, and they don't even know it. It's just that slow process. You know, it's like putting a pot in a, that classic illustration of putting a frog in a pot of boiling water. If you put him in when it's hot, he's going to jump out. But if you gradually increase the temperature, he'll boil to death because his body temperature just gradually adjusts to the surroundings around him, and he no longer realizes how far he's come from where he was before. And this is the kind of scenario we're going to see in this study in contrast between uh, Elijah, who is a courageous leader and spiritually mature and the man for the crisis, and Obadiah, who's just an immature spiritual wimp who's trying to do good, but he doesn't want to put himself at any risk in the process. Well, what we see in Romans 1 is that there's this degradation that takes place in every culture. And Romans 1, 18 to 19, says that there's enough evidence for the existence of God for everyone to be held accountable. In verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. In other words, everybody's got enough information and data from creation to know God exists. And you don't even have to put it in the guise of the intelligent design argument today. You just have to know that, um, uh, speaking of which, I think my copy of the New London Day got taken out of my hotel room today. You have a copy at home. Please save it for me. There's a great article in the day today on intelligent design, uh, a letter to the editor. So if you have it, you ought to read it. There's some good information there. Uh, verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's what's happening in Israel at the time of Elijah. They don't glorify God. They're trying to assimilate human viewpoint, divine viewpoint, so that they can be secure and they can be comfortable. And what happens is human viewpoint always eats up and destroys divine viewpoint. They become futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Think about it. It's a worship of nature and creation instead of the Creator. And that is always what happens. Once you remove God off the place as being the creator, you replace something. Replace him with something. When you take God out of the picture, there's a vacuum. And what moves in there is always some element of of the creation. You either worship nature. You worship the universe. You worship the impersonal force. You, like you have in Star Wars, you worship uh, animals and uh, birds and like you have in Hinduism and beasts and cattle and things of that nature. Or you worship man or you worship the state 
And this is what happens when you take God out as the centerpiece of authority, then something's going to replace him. And it's going to be something in nature, and in many cases, it's the state. And this is the danger that happens when you take, uh, when you practically, whether you have it sim- symbolically or not is irrelevant, but practically, if you remove the Ten Commandments and the Bible, and divine revelation is your source of authority, which is what's happened as a result of the tyranny of the, of the uh, Supreme Court in this country. When you take that out, what's going to move in is the, is the ultimate determiner of values. It's the government. And so man becomes the ultimate determiner of what's right and what's wrong. And this is always a, a, a weak system of instability, the shifting sand of human power, and it just opens the door to eventual tyranny. And we see one practice of that tyranny in what's happened with this eminent domain law, which is a violation of the Constitution, and it's going on right here in Connecticut. You are just watching this nation fall apart left and right. And it's be more falling apart left than it is right. <laughs> but the right's not helping a whole lot lately, it seems. So this is what happened in ancient Israel. Nature worship replaced the worship of God. And they're led by Ahab and Jezebel who have an agenda to destroy Christianity. And the same thing's happening today. The left in this country, and there's no mistake in the fact that there is such an antagonism to biblical Christianity and to the involvement of Christians in politics. But these people on the left, you have to watch them. They're getting, they're cagey. And not only that, but just like Satan was the most subtle creature in the garden, so are the people on the left. And you watch these political figures, and I'm thinking of one in particular, who in the last nine months, ever since the last presidential election, has all of a sudden started becoming more overt in her identification with religious symbols in order to act like she's always been there and we're just going to appeal to everybody, and it's just a farce. And as she's gone so far as to all of a sudden start talking about how she prays, never heard that before, and then we hear, then last week she shows up on the stand sitting behind Billy Graham. Now, you know, this is typical in that family. Now, you all don't know this, so I'm going to get off into a little politics. This family is good at this. There was a pastor, and I can't remember his name now, but he was a pastor of First Baptist Church in Arkansas. And this man was a solid doctrinal teacher. In fact, in the late 60s, he discovered the teachings of Pastor Thane, and he started teaching doctrine in this First Baptist Church in Arkansas. And there was a meeting, W.O. Vaught, that was his name, and he was a solid teacher. And he had a meeting with lunch with Pastor Theme one time when Bob was up there at a conference. And he said, you know, i got a young man in my church that I'm really concerned about, and he's the governor of the state. And I'm not sure where he is spiritually. But we understood what was going on because First Baptist Church was broadcast every Sunday morning throughout the state of Arkansas. And when you got that camera shot on W.O. Vaught, there was right over his left shoulder was the governor of the state. See, those people know how to use the media and imagery in order to promote this impression that they're religious and that they're just like all these other 
evangelicals. So that's just something to watch out for. It just dawned on me that this last week when you looked at Billy Graham, guess who you saw over his shoulder? And that's not the first time it happened. You know, there's, there's a history here. So you just have to be smart. And you have to can't you can't be taken in by this. But back to Israel. Get off of modern modern stuff. You get back to Israel, and there was an agenda on the part of Ahab and Jezebel to destroy the worship of Yahweh, and they were substituting the pagan worship of Baal. And in the Rosh Shamra text, which was a Canaanite study, an archaeological site in the northern part of Israel, Rosh Shamra was a Canaanite city. And in the text there, there was a statement about Baal in his temple. And to quote it, it says, quote, speaking of Baal, he will give abundance of rain, abundance of moisture with snow. He will utter his voice in the clouds, that he was also the god of thunder, and his flashings and lightnings on the, on the earth. Sacrifices were offering to him, and in the carrot text, there were sac- described sacrifice being made to Baal to bring rain upon the earth. And in those texts it reads, and, the rain, and bring the rain of the Most High, that's Baal, on the fields. Pleasant is Baal's rain on the earth, and on the field the rain of the Most High. So what we have to understand is that they're bringing into the northern kingdom this fertility religion. We talked about it some last night. And it emphasizes fertility and productivity in an agricultural society. I mean, what's the most important thing to have in an agricultural society is good weather. So what lies behind that, though, is a worship of success and prosperity. And it's no different from the uh, prosperity theology or the health and wealth teaching today. Then along with Baal, they brought in his, his consort, who was uh, Asherah. And this was the fertility goddess, usually represented by a tree trunk at these various sites of, uh, of worship. They had these groves of trees up in the hills. And uh, these were the two main deities that the Canaanites worshipped. So when Ahab married Jezebel, she sought to make the worship of Baal and Asherah the official religion in Israel. And so anyone who worshipped Yahweh was an enemy of the state. And we're going to see what happens in chapter 18 because they had police squads out looking everywhere for the known prophets and the known believers to arrest them and to kill them. And this is typical. When any state takes its position against biblical Christianity then those who hold the biblical Christianity are a threat to the power of the state, and the state is going to seek to do whatever it can to minimize, if not to destroy or annihilate, the voice of truth. And it's into that situation that we find Elijah. And we're told in in James 5.17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So when we read of these tremendous exploits of Elijah as he's willing to have the courage of his convictions and take his stand against all of the evil influence in the northern kingdom, that this is the same kind of thing we can do as believers if we've got doctrine in the soul. And the issue for us is are we going to be Christians who have the courage of our convictions like Elijah, or are we going to be Christians who want to be Clairol Christians like Obadiah? Let's have a little review from last night. 
It looks like a hopeless situation. So the first principle we learned was that as long as we are trusting God, there are no hopeless situations. It looks hopeless in the northern kingdom. It looked hopeless for Elijah at times. But what we saw in this chapter was that as long as God is in control, God provides the solution. The divine solution is the only solution. And it doesn't matter what your problem is, whether it's uh, health, whether it's finances, Whatever the circumstance may be, whether you have problems with your marriage, problem with your kids, problem with your parents, uh, whatever the situation, God has a solution, and God is going to provide the solution. And we don't want to give up or give in or despair, and that's the illustration of James 5.17. There are tests that we're going to go through. And when we go through tests, it's awfully easy to put the focus on self instead of on God. Now, we are reminded of James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various tests, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its maturing result, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, what we remember is that as you go through life, God's going to bring tests into your life. These are tests of doctrine. That's what James is talking about, knowing that the testing of your faith. Faith there is not the act of believing. It's testing what you believe. You know, you ask somebody, what's your faith? Well, you're Episcopal, you're Presbyterian, you're a Buddhist. What's your faith? What is the body of belief that you hold? That's what you're talking about here. A body of belief is your doctrine. That you're testing. God's going to give you information, promises, principles, and then he's going to test you to see, are you going to apply them? Do you believe this or are you just saying you believe it? Well, now I'm going to put you to the test. And you get the opportunity to trust it or not. So the second principle we had yesterday was never think you stand alone. We're never alone. Number one, we always have God with us, and God plus one is a majority. Number two, there are other believers. There's other churches. There's other congregations that are standing firm uh, for the word, standing firm for the truth. Third thing, uh, also related to James 1, 2 through 4, there's always multi-layered tests. These tests hit us in different layers and in different arenas. And while we're being tested with the faith rest drill, as Elijah was, he has to trust God while he obeys him and goes, down, goes to the brook Kareth. He's going to trust God, but he also has to recognize that God and his grace is going to provide for him. God's grace is always sufficient, so he's being tested in terms of faith rest drill. He's being tested in faith in relation to grace orientation. The same thing happened to Abram. You're studying along in Genesis. In Genesis chapter, chapter 16, uh, Abram gets tested both in terms of faith rest drill. He had a renewal of the promise in Genesis 15, and he has to uh, trust that God and his grace will supply, but what does he do? Sarah comes along and says, hmm, I can't get pregnant. Take my servant, Hagar, and uh, you'll have a child with her, and she'll be the promised seed. And so he fails the test by going for the human viewpoint solution. Point number four, we said that when you do the right thing the right way, the results may not always be what you originally intended. And sometimes if you're living in a society or culture that's under divine discipline, then you're going to go through the discipline too. Elijah went through the drought. He watched the brook dry up. But see, the natural resource dried up, but the supernatural resource didn't dry up. Because he's relying upon God, he didn't have to worry when he watched the natural resource dry up. When our natural resources dry up, 
we still know that God is in control and God's resources will never dry up. And the fifth principle we emphasized was that when a nation, which is a, related to the previous one, when a nation is under divine discipline, even the positive, mature believers are going to suffer by association. Now, one of the big things we looked at last night that's essential to understand, not only for last night, but also for, for uh, to, uh, to later to, tonight, tomorrow night, our understanding of Carmel, is the background. Now, this is really crucial, and I want to bring out some things I did not bring out last night. You just can't cover everything in one night. And in terms of background, what we have here in this tremendous conflict is the drama of the really bad guys. I mean, Ahab and Jezebel are evil. They are evil to the core in a biblical sense. Now, if you lived at that time, you would think they were wonderful. I, I don't know what they looked like, but I would be willing to bet that they were photogenic, that they dressed well, that they had wonderful, winsome personalities, that they associated with all of the right people, the sports celebrities, the uh, affluent businessmen that were around, the uh, politicians that were um, uh, popular. They hung with the right people, and they looked good, and they acted good, and they were attractive people, attractive in their personalities, and they were attractive in everything that they did. But what made them evil was what was going on in their soul and their promotion of idolatry. And this is so typical today. What we have to be careful of with leaders today is that there are leaders who are so overtly attractive, photogenic, charismatic. I can name you three doctrinal pastors right now that I know of over the past ten years that are loved by their congregations. They are personally attractive and winsome and charismatic in their personalities. One of them has been discovered, and somewhere around 12 or 13 women in the congregation came forward uh, one night to give testimony of how he had seduced them. In another situation, the pastor was uh, ill for some time, told the congregation he had one problem, and it turned out he had liver problem because he's an alcoholic, and he was on life support system. But nobody knows that. It's all covered up, and you'll never figure out who it is from what I say, so don't try it. And I know of another pastor that at one time he told a married woman on his staff that uh, if she would leave his husband, her husband, then uh, at least he led her on to indicate that he might uh, might marry her. Now, nobody knows this kind of stuff about these people. The congregations love them. And then we had a president who did the same kind of thing. See, this is it's like judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And, and not only are the people in the pew corrupt, but the men in the pulpit are corrupt too. And we live in an era when the whole society is just going down the tube. Well, this is what real evil is all about. It's a promotion of false religion. And the number one villainous here is Jezebel. In the Hebrew, her name is pronounced Isabel. Remember that J is like a Y. So it's Isabel. And she is devoted to Baal Melkart, which is one of the variations of the Baal uh, various Baalim, that the Baal gods that were worshipped. And he is very powerful. And she's into power lust. And she worships power. And she's going to do anything she can to assimilate uh, power. So she introduced 
the worship of Baal Melkart into the northern kingdom and brought 450 of his priests with her. And then she also introduced the worship of, of the Asherah. And this is the fertility worship with the temple prostitutes and the uh, ritual prostitution, ritual sex in order to promote uh, fertility. And she brought in 400 uh, uh, priests of Asherah. Now, all of these are supported by the taxpayers' money. How would you like to do that, paying, paying your high property taxes just to support all of, these, all of these priests? Now, of course, this is accomplished through persecution and physical intimidation, violence, and tyranny. This is always the way that evil is promoted. And what we see in our own country is while we may not have the physical intimidation, the threat of prison and the threat of jail, we still see similar things going on uh, today. We see uh, intimidation in the schools. We see, uh, we, we, we see it in education where people who are committed to creationism, if it's known, cannot pursue graduate degrees or higher degrees. They can't get into various schools. They can't get into faculty positions. They can't get into research grants. And so there is intimidation and there are threats and various other things that uh, are that challenge the uh, teaching of Christianity. And now we have the tyranny of the courts. And the liberal left promotes the public lies, misrepresenting and distorting what Christians want to do. So that people who are historically ignorant buy into their lie that what the Christian right wants is a theocracy. And if you have any historical knowledge whatsoever, you will understand that the Christian right today doesn't want anything more than what we had in the early 19th century or the late 18th century when this country was founded. And it wasn't founded as a theocracy. But we lived in a homogenous society at that time when nearly everybody operated on a Judeo-Christian worldview, even though that doesn't mean they were Christian or they had thought it out. Many of the thinkers at that time and the writers who influenced the thinkers had thought it out. And so they were influenced by these things. And uh, it won't be long in our culture if we keep going the way we're going where we will, this will develop into physical persecution and violence as well, because when truth has been rejected and removed from the marketplace, and all you have is competing versions of truth, some, somebody powerful steps in and determines what the truth is going to be, and anything that challenges it is going to be uh, put down. So that gives us our basic review. Now, the basic concept here is the challenge by the committed Christian Elijah, or the committed believer Elijah, who is the man for the crisis, and he's challenging the evil system that's being promoted by Ahab and Jezebel. Now, he's not doing it just because he disagrees. We have to recognize that. It's a different environment in the Old Testament. He is a prophet. The role of the prophet was to function as a uh, prosecuting attorney for God with reference to the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was a contract that God had made with the people. And in that contract, he made certain provisions. If you obey me, I'll do these things. If you disobey me, other things will happen. And so Deuteronomy 11:16 to 17 lays this out. 
Take heed to yourselves that your hearts be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heaven that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, and lest ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord gives you. And Leviticus 26, 18 to 20 lays this out. In verse 19 it says, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. What, what God is saying is, I'm going, to, I'm going to stop the rain, stop the productivity. I'm going to shut it all down meteorologically. And this is what Elijah announced in 1 Kings 17.1, that there would be no more dew nor rain until he spoke again. But what happened was Ahab blamed Elijah. This is what happens. Christians are going to end up getting blamed for everything. That's what the liberal left is doing. It's all the Christians' fault. No, it's no. They're they're in their arrogance. They deny the fact that they've rejected God, rejected absolutes, and they're bringing all of this on themselves. And um, and so this is what happens with Ahab. He rejects everything, uh, rejects the truth, and he's going to blame Elijah. And so Elijah disappears, and he sends out his goon squads to find Elijah and to arrest him. Because what's happened here, basically, is that he's trying to promote his kingdom, build his own kingdom. He wants success. He wants prosperity. What every good leader wants for his people, what every king wants. And what Elijah comes in and announces is, I'm bringing the greatest oppression this nation has ever seen into uh, action right now. It's not going to rain anymore. I'm going to shut down the productivity of the crops. I'm going to shut down the whole, entire economic system. You're going to, you know, no king can have stability in his country without stable economics. And so Elijah says that the economics are going to be uh, completely destroyed because, and it's not just based on his opinion or his ideas. He's prosecuting the Mosaic law, and everything that he does is related to this. He's taking a stand for God, and he's demonstrating throughout these chapters that Yahweh, as the God of Israel, is the living God, and this myth that the people have developed to try to explain life and make life work apart from obedience to God is just a sham. Now, I want to stop at that point, and I want you to turn in your Bible. See if I've got it here on the slide. We'll get past the maps. Get past the slide to 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15 is the, is the central text for apologetics, the central text for apologetics. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, the word sanctify is from the Greek verb hagiazo that means to set apart. In other words, as a believer, your job is to be set apart to the service of God. And the word for heart there indicates the thinking part of the soul. So the idea in that first part is to set apart the Lord God in your thinking. In other words, start thinking biblically. What that means is that you should always be ready to give a defense. In other versions it says to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Why do you believe her? Why do you think you're going to go to heaven? You've got to be ready to give an answer at a moment's notice to answer their questions. 
Not say, oh yeah, well I heard it on a tape somewhere. I read a book about 20 years ago. Here, No, you be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Now the word that is, that is translated defense here in other places, answer, is the Greek, Greek word apologia. Apologia. It's where we get our English word apology. Now, an apology for us is to say you're sorry, but that's not the original intent of the word. It was a legal term, it was a courtroom term, and it described a legal defensive strategy. Now, I use that word specifically, a strategy. It's not just giving a brief answer. It is a thoughtful response to a question. You're thinking through, okay, not, it's not just what's he asking on the surface, but why is he asking it? What's his framework? How can I answer this so that he understands what I'm saying? An apologia is, has two elements to it. It has a defensive element, and that's what we often think of in terms of apologetics. A defensive answer. Well, how can you believe Jesus is God? Okay, I'm going to tell you why Jesus is God. How can you believe in a resurrection? Okay, I'm going to tell you why I believe in a resurrection. How can you believe that Christ died for our sins? I'm going to tell you why I believe God uh, died, Christ died for our sins. How can you believe in a creation? Okay, I'm going to tell you why I believe. See, that's being defensive. Not in a negative sense, but we're giving that defensive answer. But there's another side to this. It's like a two-edged sword. Not only is there a defensive answer, there is an offensive strategy. And see, the defensive strategy can't work by itself. It's got to work with an offensive strategy. When you operate on the defense alone, you can't win. Now, in the spiritual life, we operate on the defense, but Christ is on the offense. Now, in apologetics, you have to have a defensive strategy and an offensive strategy. The defensive strategy gives the answers why you believe in miracles, why you believe in creation, why you believe that Christ raised from the dead, why you believe in the virgin birth, all of these things. But the offensive strategy really needs to come first. The offensive strategy is going to attack the person answering. They say, how can you believe in a loving God when there's all this suffering in the world, when there's all this evil in the world, how can you believe that God is a loving, powerful God? Either He's all-powerful, but He doesn't love us, because if He's all-powerful, He could do away with evil. So since He doesn't do away with evil, He must not love us. Okay, that's one approach. Or if He's, a, if he, he's God he's, and He loves us, He can't be powerful, because if He was powerful, He'd stop evil. That's the unbeliever's response. So before I start answering it, remember the proverb that says, Never answer a fool according to his folly. Don't jump in there. You know, you can always get caught in a trap. You know, somebody says, Well, have you quit beating your wife lately? You know, however you answer that, you're in trouble. You know, the new one I like to use is, Are you still a homosexual? You know, it's... You just don't want, you know, you've got to be careful the questions you answer. Okay, now the, the question that they answer is a wrong question because it baits a trap for you. And if you run in there saying, oh, I know the answer to this, then you're going to get caught, caught with your pants down. So what you have to do is you have to stop and say, okay, wait a minute. It says, Before I answer your question about how, uh, how there can be evil, would you please explain to me how you can, can 
uh, how you can answer the problem of evil. Why is why do you believe there's suffering and uh, death and disease and destruction in the world? Now they have to give you their answer, and if they're operating on an evolutionary presupposition, if they're thinking you've impaled them. In the old Shakespearean phrase, they're hoist on their own petard because they don't have an answer. Because in Darwinian evolution, the mechanism of advance is survival of the fittest. It's struggle. Death is the means of advance. So that means death is good. Death is normal. Suffering is normal. And they've just asked you a question that presupposes that death and evil and suffering are not normal. Now, which is it, buddy? Is death normal and good? Well, if death is normal and good, then how can you even challenge me? If death isn't normal and good, then you don't have an answer and your system's bankrupt. See, what you've done is you've demonstrated that they can't have hope, values, or meaning on the basis of their system, and then you start to answer them. This is what Elijah is doing. All through chapter 17 and chapter 18, he is demonstrating, God is demonstrating through Elijah, that Baalism is totally bankrupt and incapable of doing anything. Number one, Baal is the god of what? The weather. He's the weather god. He's the storm god. He provides uh, water. He provides all of these things. So the first thing that happens, let's go back to 1 Kings 17. The first things that happen is that Elijah comes along and says, As the Lord lives, it's not going to rain. There's not going to be any dew these years except at my word. And so there's a drought. And we read about the drought down through chapter 17. And we see that the brook dries up. The emphasis here is that because God's in control of nature and not Baal, there's no rain. You know, the first match goes to God. Now we get the second match with Elijah and the widow. And he shows up and she's got a little bit of uh, uh, flour. Where does flour come from? Well, it can come from wheat and down south it comes from corn. Good old corn meal and corn bread. And uh, interestingly enough, Baal is not only the god of rain, but he is also the god of corn and oil. And so she's running out of her uh, uh, corn meal and oil. And she just has a little in the jar, and she's going to make a little uh, uh, corn pone for, for her son and herself. And then she's going to die. And so Elijah says, no, you're not going to run out of flour. You're not going to run out of oil. God's going to supply. And so for the next year and a half or two years, the whole period's three and a half years, probably a half a year or a year at uh, Kareth, and then a couple of years with the widow. And throughout this time... God consistently provides the flour and the oil and the water for the widow, not Baal, but it's God. So you see, what's happening here isn't just a nice little story about how God is providing logistical support for Elijah. He is providing it in such a way as to demonstrate the bankruptcy of the false system of thinking. And then her son dies. And we didn't get into that in a lot of detail yesterday other than to say that Elijah is going to pray over him and bring him back to life. But Baal was also the God who would heal the sick and supposedly bring the dead back to life. 
And here it is God who heals the sick and brings the dead back to life. So the first match goes to God, the second match goes to God, and the third match goes to God. And all of this happens where? It happens in the privacy of Elijah's uh, withdrawal from society. Nobody else sees that. So what's happening? You go through these three tests. The tests are related, first of all, to his understanding of, of the faith rest drill. Is he going to trust God or not? Second, the tests are related to grace orientation. Is he going to recognize that God's going to meet his every need and supply for him even in the midst of the crisis? And third, each one of these tests is relating to is related to demonstrating the bankruptcy of Baalism so that now Elijah understands that Baal can't do anything and God can do everything and he's headed off for the big international competition between Yahweh and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in chapter 18. And he's already had three demonstrations from God that God is going to kick their butts. And it is the greatest story in the Old Testament. But we've got another little problem. And that comes in in chapter uh, 18. So we start off in verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of... Oh, excuse me, I went to 17, 18. And it came to pass after many days, actually we know it's three and a half years from James five seventeen, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Now, whoa, wait a minute. James five seventeen said three and a half years, and here it says in the third year. That seems like there's a discrepancy there. Probably not. The best way to handle this is Israel has the spring rains and the fall rains. So it had rained in the spring. You had your normal dry summer. And just before the fall rains comes, Elijah marches in and says, it's not going to rain. Okay? So that's your half a year. And then you have your three years. So now at the end of the three years or towards the end, God comes to Ahab and says, go present yourself. He comes to Elijah and says, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Now, why is God sending rain on the earth? He's taught them a lesson. He has taught them the lesson that He is God. And there's 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, and because of their presence in the land, this is the doctrine of the remnant, as it's laid out in Romans 11, verse 3, because of the remnant, and the remnant doctrine only applies to Jews, doesn't apply to the church age, it only applies to Israel because of the doctrine of the remnant. God is going to bless the nation, and he is going to send rain. So verse 2. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. An extreme famine in Samaria. So what's going on? What happens when there is extreme economic depression? No food, no water. What do you think people are doing? There's an increase in criminality. People are going to be stealing. There is starvation in the streets. There is malnutrition. There is an increase of disease. People are depressed. People are desperate. They are running around in a frantic search for happiness, appealing to all of the different uh, false gods, trying to get something to happen and uh, the rain to come and their uh, sacrificing to Baal, and we know from uh, history and archaeology that there was 
uh, human sacrifice and child sacrifice going on. So they're sacrificing their children and the infants to these false gods in order to get something to happen. But what we learn here is that the issue isn't meteorological. That's not the problem. You're not going to solve this problem by seeding the clouds. The problem isn't political. I mean, that's certainly an aspect of this, but ultimately that's not the real problem. It's not because you've got a leader that is promoting evil. And we've had a number of, of comparable political figures in this nation. But they're a manifestation of a deeper problem. Remember what I said last night? People get the leaders they deserve, and they deserve the leaders that they get. And because of negative volition in this nation, we are getting the leaders we deserve, and we deserve the leaders that we get, and we are losing our, our freedoms. But the real issues here aren't meteorological. They're not political. They're not economic. They're not managerial. It's not based on class warfare. It's not some uh, issue of the proletariat versus the masses. What's the issue? The issue is spiritual. Now, you get this down and remember this. The issue in history is always spiritual. What is the main causative agent that moves history down the line to its final culmination? It is always spiritual. It is a spiritual issue. It's not ultimately politics. It's not ultimately legislation. It's not meteorological. It's none of these things. It is ultimately, it has to do with a nation's uh, spiritual orientation. And they are in a famine, an economic collapse because of their spiritual rejection of God. And Ahab calls in one of his key people. This is like the number two or number three guy in the land. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now, here we see a real discontinuity in the text. The number two guy in the land is Obadiah. Now, he looks good at first. He looks really good. Now, do you think Jezebel's going to let the number two guy in the land be an outspoken worshiper of Yahweh? I don't think so. So he's a secret service Christian. Like I said earlier, only God knows for sure. Now, Obadiah, we're told, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. So we know he was a believer. And we're told a little bit more about him. For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them fifty to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. So we see that God is using Obadiah. He feared the Lord greatly. He's a highly placed believer in the land, but he really has no influence. He can't change anything. He can't affect anything. He has no influence on Ahab, no influence on Jezebel. He keeps his head down. He's not going to wave a flag and say, I'm going to take a stand for Yahweh and what you're doing is wrong. What's going to happen? He's going to chop his head off. He's going to be dead in his tracks. And so like a lot of believers today, he figures out that I'm going to, I'm going to try to help people. That's my goal. I've got some ultimate good. I'm going to help people. And I can help people if I keep my head down. In other words, I'm going to opt for security. And I'm not going to risk my health or my life to take a stand for God. 
and I'm going to keep my head down, and I'm just going to work behind the scenes and try to help the situation out. Now, I've seen this, in, like I said, in churches, in ministries, in seminaries, where there's administration changes and, sh- and subtle shifts in orientation, and, some, and employees and people there work at, they, they hold their loyalty to something else. I'm going to h- hire good. Somehow as a secretary, as a bookkeeper, as a business manager, as someone who works in the mailroom, uh, as, as an associate staff, I'm going to stay here because I'm devoted to what the ministry originally stood for. And I'm going to try to stay here to have an impact. And what's happened is there's degradation. And each time there's a new policy change, they're compromising at some level their own integrity in the process. And it may not be a doctrinal issue, but there are other issues involved, and sooner or later it becomes a doctrinal issue. And if you've been compromising on the way things ought to be done, then when the doctrinal issue comes up, you're going to slide. Because remember, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And what happens is that the way the devil works, the way the cosmic system works, is first he gets you to compromise on the methodology. Because if it's a wrong thing, you're not going to go for it. But if it's still a right thing, but it's a wrong way, you're going to compromise and say, well, you know, it's not too bad, and you're going to buy into an end justifies the means argument. I'm going to stay here. Because I may help out. I'm going to stay in this company. They may be forcing everybody to go through some kind of new age training, some psychobabble technique to make them better, uh, more effective leaders, uh, have highly effective habits, or whatever it may be. They're going to impose that on everybody. And what you're watching is you're watching idolatry being imposed on the employees of the company year after year after year, and because it's your job and your paycheck and your bills, you're not going to say anything. Now, look at the contrast between Obadiah here, who's keeping his head down, and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel in Daniel 1 and Daniel 2. In Daniel 1, they have this diet issue, and Daniel shows wisdom. He doesn't make it a spiritual issue. He just goes in and he says, let's try a little test case here. You know, we're going to eat our diet, and after 10 days, you can give a test and see if we're doing better than everybody else who's eating your diet. And he's appealing to the, to, to the, to the norms and standards of the human viewpoint boss. And he says, just, just let us try it, and we'll be more productive, we'll be healthier, more energetic, and we'll do more for you. And it worked. And then you come to chapter 2, which is a scenario where Nebuchadnezzar uh, puts up the big statue, or excuse me, it's about chapter 4. He puts up the big, big statue, and everybody's got to worship it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Benigo come along, and they say, we're not going to bow down because our God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. And they were going to lose their lives. They were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And, but they weren't going to compromise at any level. And compare that to Obadiah. His life was too dear to him. And we are reminded that Jesus said that as a believer we're to take up our cross daily and follow him. That means we are to put ourselves in the same position where our life is at stake in living for Him as He did. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. 
Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The issue is, is our life more committed to the cause of Christ than it is to our own personal safety and security? And Obadiah was an immature believer, and he represents the believer who's trying to achieve a moral good. He's going to save some people. There's no doubt that he helped out a hundred prophets. The end, though, did not justify the means, which was keeping his head down and compromising. Ultimately, he put his own security ahead of doing what was right all the way. Therefore, he was a spiritual failure. He lacked courage. He was motivated by fear, not by trust in the Lord. And so there is a confrontation between him and Elijah. Verse 5, And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we do not have to kill any livestock. So they divide up the land. They go out on an exploration to try to find something. And on the way, in verse 7, Obadiah runs into Elijah. Oops. And he recognized him and fell on his face. And he says, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And Elijah says, It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. Oh, no. I don't want to do that. He said, how have I sinned that you're telling me to go into that, you're delivering me into the hand of Elijah? You know, what did I do wrong? Why are you saying, see, this guy's not focused on doctrine. He may be a believer, but he is not committed as Ahab is. I mean, as Elijah is. Verse 10. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. He's had the goon squads out everywhere. They've been in Phoenicia. They've been in Samaria. They've been in Judea. They've gone across to the Transjordan. He's been looking high and low for you. He's got a price on your head. And now you want me to go tell him, well, here comes Elijah. I found him. He's going to shoot the messenger. And he says in verse 12, as soon as it comes to pass... And I leave for you the Spirit of the Spirit of the Lord is going to come along and carry you to a place I don't know where. So when I go and tell Ahab and he can't find you, he's going to kill me. See, he's motivated by fear. And he tries to argue with Elijah. Verse 13, I says, didn't he tell you what I did? I did some good deeds. But he's motivated by fear. But finally he goes to meet Ahab. And tells Ahab, and there's no consequences. See, when you're doing what God wants you to do, God's in charge of the consequences as well. If you're going to burn up in the fiery furnace, you will, but that's fine. If you're going to be delivered, that's fine. Now, nothing bad happens to Obadiah. He went to meet Ahab in verse 16 and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And that's where we'll start tomorrow night as we set up for this final confrontation between Yahweh and the prophets of Baal. And this is just a great lesson in offensive apologetics. See, God has already cut the legs out from under Baal in terms of Elijah personally by providing water, providing flour and oil, and delivering the life of the Son. Now he's going to do it at a national level and in front of everybody. And when we trust the Lord, what we learn here is we have to trust Him completely, not like Obadiah. So the call for us is are we going to be wimpy little believers like Obadiah, or are we going to press on 
to spiritual maturity. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this study. Thank you for the challenge. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and put them into practice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.